The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature Podcast. The music we're listening to is from Igor Stravinsky's classic symphony, The Rite of Spring. We're back in the world of the modernists, the group of writers and artists in the early 20th century who sought to reinvent new forms of art to keep up with a changing world. An industrializing, globalizing world, yes, but also a change in our own understanding of individuals, of an individual's relationship to the state and the nature of the human mind. We've taken a few cracks at the modernists recently, we had the episode on James Joyce with Vincent O'Neill, the man who grew up in the shadow of the Martello Tower and who later played James Joyce on the stage and spent years adapting and staging a version of Finnegan's Wake. We also had a conversation with Professor Bill Hogan, who walked us through the ruins, or the use of ruins, in the poets Yeats and Frost and Stevens and H.D. Soon we'll have an episode on Virginia Woolf. And I'm sure we'll have plenty of others as well. It's a great period for literature when a desire for experiment and innovation coincided with a burst of humanism and a stable of geniuses, the perfect environment for a literary flourishing. Now imagine this. Take any period you like, any great literary period. Maybe it's Paris in the 1920s, maybe it's Athens in the days of the great tragedies, Elizabethan England, China in the Tang Dynasty. There are any number of examples. We'll take the modernist period in London and throughout Europe. So what do we have here? Ernest Hemingway and Gertrude Stein and Virginia Woolf and Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot and all the revered figures from that period, painters like Picasso following on the heels of Monet and Cezanne and Van Gogh, pushing further, pushing ahead, composers like Stravinsky, and our literary figures, famous in their time, well-regarded, artistically successful and admired. That's who's at this party. That's who we have here. We're lucky to have them all. They're like a Mount Rushmore of literary modernism, except with a dozen faces instead of four. Now, imagine there's one guy who doesn't fit in. One guy who stands in the corner, watching the parade of successes. One guy on the outside, lobbing missiles. One surly old crank who cares about all the things that these people do, who cares about art and innovation and novels and poetry and all the rest. But he hates these guys, these revered titans of a flourishing movement. And he's sharp, too. 
sharp in every sense of the word, he points out their weaknesses and flaws before we can get there. We read his attacks even today and see the truth in them and admire them for their energy. And he didn't do it with the benefit of hindsight. He made his attacks in real time. One guy. Well, you could probably always find such a guy in any literary period, and usually he'd be somebody without talent, someone jealous, someone who could criticize maybe, but who was not himself an artist. But in this case, the movement of literary modernism got a crank who was himself a genius, Wyndham Lewis. He was at the head of a movement, a sub-movement of modernism called Vorticism. I've invited an expert in Lewis and Vorticism to join me today, the great Professor Paul Pepys, professor at the University of Oregon. He'll be here in a minute. Boy, it's hard keeping up with guys like Professor Pepys. He knows things. I do my best. You'll hear that in a minute. But first, I want to make the case for Lewis, who's often dismissed as a curiosity. Well, he is a curiosity, but he's not just a curiosity. He's someone to consider. Someone we need to reckon with. He was a decent novelist, usually a very good one, sometimes a great one. He was very skilled, full of energy. There are more than flashes of brilliance. He was a great essayist and pamphleteer, and he was probably, his best skill was probably painting. He was excellent. His paintings are dynamic, exciting, full of edge and verve. I would describe some of them like this, abstract or nearly abstract with bright colors or sharp contrasts in black and white. They spin almost out of control. Your eyes are drawn to the center, as if you're being pulled into the guts of a machine with whirring blades all around you. Even the less abstract paintings, the portraits and self-portraits, have a harshness to them, a sharp, angular edge, as if they'd been painted by someone who had seen the modern world for what it was, a fast, harsh place full of hypocrisy and struggle something thrilling about that world, just like there's something thrilling about those paintings. They're possessed with an inner energy. It's cynical and ambitious at the same time. It's engaged. It's one of the more fascinating twists in our story, the story that we're telling of the history of literature. It's the twist in the road that the mad genius, the lonely old volcano, as W.H. Auden called him, it's the twist in the road that Wyndham Lewis forces us to take. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. 
Join the cat in the hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Joining me now is Professor Paul Pepys of the English Department at the University of Oregon, where he is also the director of the Oregon Humanities Center. Professor Pepys is the author of two monographs, Sciences of Modernism, Ethnography, Sexology, and Psychology, which came out in 2014, and Literature, Politics, and the English Avant-Garde, published in 2000. I invited him here today to discuss one of the fascinating offshoots of modernism, the movement known as Vorticism. Professor Pepys, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. It's great to be here. I suppose my first question should be whether I'm correct in calling Vorticism an offshoot of modernism. What exactly was Vorticism? I would call uh, Vorticism an offshoot of modernism. Modernism is a very broad, multifarious cultural movement, roughly in the first half of the 20th century, though scholars debate the end point of modernism. Uh, during the early years of the 20th century, uh, especially re before the First World War, there was an explosion of uh, self-consciously avant-garde art groups that uh, uh, spread across Europe and the West. Vorticism was one of those groups, along with Futurism, Cubism, um, and others. So I would call it an early modernism. We tend to talk about modernisms in the plural now. Mm -hmm. And it's an avant-garde modernism. So we distinguish it from the high modernism of the post-World War I period, largely because it was a, a, a sort of revolutionary in its orientation and radical in its aesthetics, a multidisciplinary, multimedia uh, phenomenon, which is common among uh, all of these different uh, avant-garde groups that are active uh, before the First World War. And you mentioned futurism. That's the one that I've always associated with vorticism. I think some of the the vorticists were attended a, a futurism, a futurist presentation in London, and that's the Italian movement uh, led by Filippo Tommaso Marinetti. And they really wanted to get rid of the old and and blow up museums and drive fast cars and embrace machinery. They kind of glorified uh, warfare and so on. Who were the vorticists, and why did this strike a chord with them? It's important to understand about the futurists that they really invented the modern avant-garde movement. Mm. And their genius was, the genius of Marinetti was, that he used the techniques of modern print capitalism and advertising to promote the, the uh, movement. He was one of the first to, to realize that there was no such thing as bad publicity. Uh, he was called the caffeine of Europe. <laughs> and he basically set about 
spreading futurism throughout Europe, and he traveled with a, a varying groups of futurist painters and other uh, futurist artists and took them all over Europe and had exhibits of their work and performed various um, happenings or uh, what you might think of as performance art, declaiming their manifestos in public and uh, proclaiming all the values that you just enumerated, the love of uh, violence, uh, aggression, speed, machines. All young artists who saw themselves as trying to transform art and make new art were galvanized by futurism and inspired by futurism and had to contend with it. So when Marinetti uh, brought the futurist to England, he got a tremendous amount of press, a lot of it negative, a lot of it fascinated. And not surprisingly, all these young, ambitious uh, artists and writers from England flocked to hear from him and learn about him. And they were inspired by him, but he, he was, um, a constitutionally colonizing type of guy, and he started to try to co-opt local artists into the futurist movement, and that's exactly what he did in London. He wrote, along with one of the English artists, uh, a manifesto called Vital English Art, and he uh, proclaimed uh, a group of artists as uh, English futurists, and he named a, a bunch of the artists who would shortly become vorticists. And they, though they had been inspired by him, they they resented this uh, co-opting and uh, turned against futurism. Hmm. And they had been formulating their own particular styles of abstract visual art. And it's important to understand that before the First World War, the visual arts really led the way in terms of experimentation in the arts, much more so than the literary arts, which became sort of caught up after the war. And abstraction and collage were the cutting-edge modes of visual experimentation, collage and abstraction first innovated by the Cubists, and abstraction also uh, taken up by the Futurists. And the Vorticist painters were formulating modes of abstract painting and visual art in England when Marinetti arrived. And he wanted them to become Futurists. They didn't want to, and they reacted strongly against that, and that's what drove them to found their own native movement, they they called it. And um, Ezra Pound who is not an Englishman, gave them the name. And mm -hmm. they had been working on this journal, Blast, uh, which when they were putting it together, they didn't have the name Vorticism. And uh, when this controversy happened, they came up with the name and they added pages, the manifesto that begins the uh, journal, and identified themselves as Vorticists. So that's it's, it was a contentious relationship between Futurism and Vorticism. Right. And, and the manifesto is explicitly anti-futurist in many ways. And was it was it jingoism that led them to want to have their own movement, or was there something about the futurism platform that they objected to or wanted to depart from? I've argued in my first book that part of what inspired them was a kind of feeling of cultural nationalism. Mm -hmm. um, and I've actually argued that most of these avant-garde groups uh, were inspired uh, by cultural nationalism, futurism above all, which is very explicitly an Italian, aggressively Italian movement. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the Vorticists took great pains in the manifesto to distinguish their relationship to modernity from that of the futurists. And they ridiculed the futurists for their childish enthusiasm for all things modern. 
especially airplanes and automobiles. And the future, the, the vorticists argued that England had invented modernity. That's where the Industrial Revolution began. And for them, modernity was not something that you were thrilled by. You didn't worship the machine. Hmm. You had a much more cool and skeptical view of the reality of modernity, which is understandable given the impacts of industrialization in London in particular and in, in uh, Manchester, etc. Italy, remember, com- is comparatively undermodernized. Right. Largely because it was then and still to this day remains a place of uh, tremendous tourist traffic and great old and ancient art. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things that Marinetti objected to in, in Italy. He wanted it to be modernized. Right. You get the feeling that he he felt like he was walking through a museum every day rather than a, a vibrant city. That's exactly right. And he called, you know, in, in the manifestos, he wanted to uh, burden the museums and flood the museums. What, but in England, at that very moment, the suffragettes were actually going into the museums and slashing paintings. And for the English vorticists, these claims about the glories of uh, modernity and also the kind of relentless hostility to the past, they were more skeptical of that. Mm. Um, a couple of the vorticists, as we found among them, was actually quite a classicist in his orientation toward past art as a the, the first movement he was involved with was imagism. And the Images Manifesto states quite clearly that their goal is to create poetry that can stand with the great greatest poetry in history. So the hostility to the past is not as intense among vortices, and the fascination and love for modernity is not as intense. They they said that they were um, defenders of the present, and they called themselves primitive mercenaries of the modern world. And the the vorticists, or the the group that became vorticists, it seems like they're very protective of art and and an artistic sensibility that they maybe saw as being undermined in the rest of the society. Yes, they were. It has been argued pretty strongly that they were they were um, aesthetes in a way, mm-hmm. uh, not art for art's sake type of aesthetes, but they were great defenders of the power of art. One of the ideals of the avant-garde is to put art into life and to have art lead. Uh, the transformation of reality, that's where the metaphor of the avant-garde, they are the advanced guard for the modernization or the transformation of, of uh, the world into uh, the kind of place that the artists wanted to create. Pound called artists the antennae of the race. Hmm. Uh, and they often talk about an aristocracy of artists, the hmm. British uh, modernists in particular. Right. And I, I want to eventually get to the, the literature, but the art is so important that I want to stay with that for a minute. I think probably most of our listeners would be more familiar with Cubism. And the Vorticists believe that Cubism, I mean, they appreciated the abstraction and some of the concepts of Cubism, but they seem to have a complaint that it wasn't alive enough or was, didn't have enough energy. What did they mean by that and what did they do to address that? Well, the, the, their central metaphor of the vortex, I think, is useful in this mm-hmm. regard. The Pound described it as a, a, a kind of still point in the midst of a swirling vortex of energy. The center of the vortex is the place of stillness and maximum intensification of energy. Right. So they, they some people have argued that they tried to combine 
the kind of uh, um, cubistic monumentalism of cubism and the dynamism and curvilinearity of futurist aesthetics. My view about this is that there's a kind of monumentality to vorticism where they're trying to contain visual energy in quite strong lines and angular forms. And I think that their view is that they're, they want that there's a kind of compression of energy, a containment of energy intensifies the impact of it. I, I think you're absolutely right that they, they wanted their works, their canvases to be brimming with a kind of contained energy. And it's useful in this regard to know something about the kind of ma- most important theoretician for vorticism, which is the British uh, philosopher, art critic, and uh, political theorist T.E. Hume, mm-hmm. who argued fiercely against Romanticism because it mistakenly believed that humans were unlimited. And he, he said that the, the Romantics were always threatening to shoot off into the circumambient gas. <laughs> and he argued that humans are essentially limited and recognizing containment and discipline and rigor, which he put all of those values under the category of classicism, that was the kind of art that was needed. And the Vorticists drew strongly on those kinds of theories. Uh, they're quite anti-romantic in their uh, aesthetic preferences, and the notion that containment or constraint is a crucial part and discipline uh, other words that were important to them were hardness and um, uh, dryness. Those are values that they, I'd say, they tried to um, translate into visual form in the canvases of vorticism. Mm-hmm. And then when they when they turned to writing, I know uh, some of the leading vorticists, some were painters, some were sculptors, uh, some were poets, some were novelists, and then some did uh, some of both. How did the writing and the art feed off of one another? Do you see some of these artistic principles in the writing itself? You know, this is, I think, a a large challenge that's going on among writers as they confront this revolutionary revolution of visual art. Mm -hmm. We know this, for example, in the case of Gertrude Stein, who talked very explicitly how her early uh, experimental writings were inspired by cubism. Right. And I, and this is happening everywhere because the visual artists are really leading the way in terms of transforming, transforming art and creating experimental visual art. Writers are trying to figure out how to do that. Right. In Blast, the first issue of uh, the journal Blast, there's a number of works of literature, uh, uh, which you could not in any real sense call vortices. They're interesting. So, uh, Ford Maddox Ford's The Good Soldier is first serialized in part there, which is a very important novel of the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. There's one text, though, one literary text in Blast One called Enemy of the Stars, which was created by Lewis, which is a play, sort of. Mm-hmm. And he is trying there to abstract language in a way that would be parallel to abstracting the visual representation, which is what is going on in all all of these uh, uh, visual art movements. And Marinetti was trying to do something similar, though, in a very different way. So there's an effort to figure out how you abstract 
writing. And one of the ways that Lewis did it was to try to minimize uh, the narrative qualities of language, trying to make words more monumental. And in the Vortices Manifesto, you can see there's an effort to visualize the word. Um, the pages of the manifesto are newspaper-sized pages. They're using large black uh, typeface. And there's an effort in some of the manifesto pages in particular to literally turn words into images. So one of the most familiar and famous uh, pages of the Blast Manifesto is the first, the one section is blasts. They blast all these things, England, France, all these different kinds of people. And then it's followed by a series of uh, blesses. And when they get to the blesses, the first bless page says, bless England, for its ships, which switch back on blue, green, and red seas all around the pink earth ball, big bets on each. The t that part of that page is actually a kind of concrete poem in the shape of a ship. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of uh, chimney at the top, and the prow of the ship is on the left. They wanted you to look at the words and see them as objects on the page. So Marjorie Perloff, a literary scholar, has talked about Blast as being significant because Lewis used the page as a kind of canvas and used language as a visual marker. And this is one of the ways that modernism in writing attempted to experiment, which was to focus on the medium itself, the word, Mm -hmm. So Gertrude Stein's an ex a perfect example of someone who sort of analyzes what language does and how it works and takes it apart. That's parallel to what the visual artists were doing. They were uh, becoming increasingly concerned with the medium itself. They rejected the idea of paint as a represent re solely as a representational tool, and became interested in paint and the properties of paint on its own, not as a tool to represent something in reality, but for its own sake. Mm -hmm. That's one of the ways that the problem of how you experiment with language was solved. But it was a complicated one, and many of the great experimental writers never went as far as Gertrude Stein to basically short-circuit uh, languages conventional narrative and communicative properties. Virginia Woolf, for example, one of the great innovators of free and direct discourse and, and uh, stream of consciousness narrative, uh, she never made language as opaque and as anti-communicative as Stein would and as Lewis does in Anne of the Stars. Mm -hmm. And I... I... Remembering the example, I think Ernest Hemingway had said that one of the biggest influences on his style was uh, the paintings of Cezanne and the brush strokes. And, and I think that's a good example of the style is certainly not uh, difficult. If anything, it's, it's easier than what uh, people were used to. But it was he was drawing from the visual advances uh, in order to come up with a style that um, he believed, I think, represented a kind of modernity. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And, and Hemingway is interesting because against the grain of many modern fiction writers who pursued various forms of psychological narrative, his aesthetic was quite externalizing. So mm -hmm. 
in The Sun Also Rises, and this is partially inspired by his work as a reporter. He, he doesn't like to spend much time focused on the internal lives of his characters. They struggle to avoid focusing on their internal lives. And in that sense, um, Hemingway and Lewis, as a writer, had some things in common, though. <laughs> Hemingway called Lewis, uh, yeah. said he looked like a rapist, and uh, they did not get along. An unsuccessful rapist. <laughs> the eyes of an unsuccessful rapist. But um, they both shared an interest in externality and uh, a dislike for focusing on the squishy psychological interior right. of their writing. Right. Well, let's talk about Wyndham Lewis a little more. I think he's kind of the central figure of vorticism in a lot of ways. He's one of the most talented figures that I can think of in literature in that he was really a, an exceptional painter. Where did he come from? <laughs> Where did he come from? Well, he's, his, his origin story is a complicated and, and contested one. His father was a Canadian. His mother was English. Uh, he was born in Canada. Uh, there are claims that he was born on his father's yacht uh, off the coast of Nova Scotia. So did he his, grow up in, in privilege and have an artistic childhood? Uh, or it's, it's, The story of his, his uh, childhood is interesting. His, his, his father is a man with means. Mm -hmm. and while his parents are together, he has some privilege. And his he goes to the rugby school, which is one of the most elite uh, boarding schools in England. It's founded by the father of Matthew Arnold. It's the boarding school that the famous novel Tom Brown School Days occurs in. Uh, and he attended the Slade School of Art, which was the most cutting-edge, important art school at the time. But his father um, left, and his he and his mother slipped down the class ladder. She opened a boarding house. And for the rest of his life, he was a man who struggled with money. So when I was researching my book, hmm. I went to the Lewis Archive at Cornell University, and I went through all the materials there and his letters. And the thing he spoke about most in his letters, by far, was how little money he had, how much he needed money, and how he was working to get money. Hmm. He's powered, in my judgment, by a tremendous amount of class resentment. Mm -hmm. because he believed himself to be immensely talented, and I believe he was immensely talented. Um, but his greatest fame in his life occurred in the pre-war period because he really was one of the top two abstract painters in the country at the time. The other competitor is David Bomberg, I think most people would agree. And he had quite a... a he was quite famous, really quite famous before the war. But he was a... He was an extremely difficult person, mm -hmm. uh, brimming with a, a slew of resentment, and he had particular resentment for uh, upper-class, privileged uh, British leaders of culture, the Bloomsbury Group in particular, who he started had a you know he had some relationships with these people initially, and grew to loathe them with a kind of. <laughs> <laughs> insane uh, intensity. Uh, one of his greatest satirical works, it's a huge, thick satirical novel called The Apes of God, right. <laughs> is a relentless satire of Bloomsbury, in particular, the Sitwell family. But he, oh, and he has, you know, he just, he has terrible things to say about almost all of the Bloomsburyites. Uh, there's quite a vicious attack on uh, Virginia Woolf and, um, Revenge for Love, uh, a novel of his from the 30s. Um, 
and his I think his class resentment fueled his extremely restless creative intelligence, but it drove him to um, burn every bridge. So mm-hmm. he, he was a man who, by the end of the First World War, did not have many friends. And this was a complicated problem for his entire career. And he, he, he nurtured the view that he had, his, his career as a painter had been thwarted by, uh, the Bloomsbury folks who controlled, in his view, controlled taste in England. So, mm-hmm. and that is part of why he wanted to be a writer always too. But he, his writing career became much more important to him because he felt that he couldn't get a fair shake as an artist. Uh, because mm. of this conspiracy, and he was a, he was inclined to believe in conspiracies. And his his class resentment didn't turn him into a man of the people, did it? It turned him into more of an isolated artist, uh, a lonely volcano. He was yeah. <laughs> uh, no, he was a he was, um, you know, one of his numerous identities was the enemy. So he had a journal called the Enemy, and he saw himself as the enemy, and he saw himself as the critic of modernism anti-modernist and his identity was very much constituted uh, after the first world war through this persona of being the enemy of all uh, conventional views uh, all established powers and taste Uh, and this helps to explain why as a writer his his preferred mode is is satire and polemic Mm mm-hmm he really is the greatest satirical writer of modernism, and this is one of the reasons why his reputation did not fare as well. Satire is always uh, treated as a derivative and secondary category of, of literary production, and it was his preferred mode of uh, literary expression. And so he's, an, he's a very, very uh, tough, cold, nasty writer but also incredibly talented smart and funny yeah i'm always drawn to his writing i'm always drawn to his paintings and i I, i'm a little not sure exactly why i find it so compelling because like you said he's a man with a lot of rough edges and and it's he's seems like a hard guy to like and at the same time there's something uh, I don't know, thrilling, I guess, about what he seems to be taking on. He has a way, it's almost like Nietzsche in a way, where he's you admire the ambition and the uh, recklessness with which he's setting forth his agenda. I think that's exactly right. And he is often, you know, Nietzsche is often identified as an influence and uh, inspiration for him. And I think that's a fair, that's a fair view. Uh, I think you described it exactly right. He's He's a kind of fabulous monster. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned World War One. I. I know that the the futurists are often seen to have kind of faded from view because they had taken such explicit pro-war positions. And after the horrors of World War One, it was kind of viewed as untenable or unpalatable for the the wider society. Did the Vorticists and Lewis did? Did they meet a similar chilling with World War One, or were there just other reasons why World War One marked kind of the end of his widespread popularity? There's a number of things that happened. Not probably the most significant thing of all is that two of the leading members or uh, associates of the Vorticis movement, Henri Gaudiazerska, the sculptor of the movement, mm-hmm. and T.E. Hume, both died in the war. So they're both wow. killed. In- in combat, and that has a, a, a huge impact. And, you know, the, 
it's it's uh, impossible to celebrate war if your you know your people that inspire you or that you're that you're allied with are killed and there was a kind of cult of violence and irrationality that was quite broadly spread across Europe before the first world war and Marinetti's expression war the only hygiene of the world is the kind of ultimate expression of that cult of violence mm-hmm. for the British modernists the war demolished that idea and it you know they they learned quickly that war was not um that the cost of war far outweighed the benefits of war and that helps to account for the kind of alienation of the post-war period of post-war modernism epitomized i think above all in in t.s Eliot's the wasteland mm-hmm. uh, but the the sort of darkness and satirical orientation of lewis's writing is also a resultant part of of the war and i should also say that uh, the war had a, a negative impact on the popularity of abstract art in britain uh, lewis really uh, stepped back from uh, the kind of hardcore abstraction in his visual work that he had been doing before the war. Mm-hmm. And this happens elsewhere. You know, um, Picasso, after the war, moves into the, his classical period where he returns to figuration after Cubism. And there, it seems as if the claims of reality, uh, that the war brought home became quite strong again. And, mm-hmm. They felt a need to address what Eliot called the vast panorama of futility and anarchy, which is modern history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, you know, this, this also, I think, helps explain why imagism in poetry, which is the dominant movement in Anglo-American poetry before the First World War, these very short imagistic poems, falls by the wayside and is replaced by these uh, efforts by major uh, modern poets to write epic poems that can accommodate the lessons and reality of trauma and destruction that the war wrought. Mm-hmm. And it was this particular war, I mean, it was, or the, the developments in war, it was, you, you almost imagine that by 1905 or 1910, people could almost glamorize the war on horseback with you know, aristocrats leading the charge and the the romanticized uh, heroism of the Napoleonic Wars or or wars of the 19th century. But World War One was just shocking to everyone with trench warfare and the mechanized killing. No doubt about it. The first industrial war, uh, slaughter on an industrial scale. That fantasy about the you know they thought. When the war began, it would be over in a in a few months. Mm-hmm. Uh, they thought it would be a cavalry war of the kind that you described. They had no idea what the machine gun and the tank and the airplane and um, mustard gas would do. And the post World War One Europe is a traumatized culture, mm-hmm. and it, you know you you didn't have to be physically wounded. You didn't even have to be a combatant to have been traumatized in uh, unprecedented ways by that war because, you know, you can't, there's no understanding what industrial warfare means prior to experiencing it. And mm-hmm. they had no idea. They had no idea what they uh, had had wrought. 
And uh, Wyndham Lewis served as an artillery officer during the war. Did he come out of the experience chastened in any way, or was he more determined than ever to pursue his artistic and political views? I think he was determined to pursue his artistic and political views, though I believe that they were transformed by the experience, and I think Mm -hmm. that this is common. I think it was difficult for any young man who had been in that conflict to not come back and feel that that your generation had been done wrong mm-hmm. and that the world that had let that war happen was a deeply corrupt uh, and um, flawed world. And I think that helps explain why in the wake of World War One, you have these two mass political movements that become extremely powerful and popular that are not the mass movements that were the dominant ones before the war, which is communism and fascism. And these seemed to the people that embraced them alternatives to the parliamentary, democratic, liberal politics that dominated in Europe prior to World War One, which uh, after the war, many people felt had uh, been responsible for that war, and they were seeking alternative political movements, which Pound and Elliot and Lewis were swept up in, as were many, many people of their generation. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the appeal of the strongman who tells the hard truth and is charismatic and can make the trains run on time and is of the generation that was uh, destroyed by this war, those figures had tremendous popular appeal, and they used the power of modern, um, the kinds of tools that Marinetti had used, uh, Mussolini used, and, and Hitler used. They mobilized the incredible anger and devastation of those populations uh, to advance their utopian and totalitarian fantasies of government. Right. And Lewis was, he, I don't know if he was briefly a Nazi or he was drawn to the Nazis for a while and he rejected them uh, eventually. But what what's his relationship with the Nazis? Yes, well, Pound, Elliot, Lewis, and others uh, were attracted to uh, right-wing movements after the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a number of, reasons to account for that. I mean, um, they had an inclination to believe that geniuses and strong men would lead the way. That They were inclined to believe that on their own terms as artists. They thought that, as we said, artists were these advanced guard. Lewis, as I said, had this class resentment, which both Mussolini and Hitler exploited to great degrees. Mm-hmm. And Lewis went to Germany in uh, the late... 20s and observed uh, the Hitler movement. And, you know, we need to understand that the Hitler movement was very popular in Germany and that he was an extremely charismatic leader. And Lewis was taken up. He was, you know, swept up in that. And he, he came back and he wrote a book called Hitler, which was a, a defense of Hitler. Now, this book is published in 30, I think. And it's important to understand that 1930 is not, it's 1931 that that's published. 1930 is not, not 1938. Right. He was never a member of uh, the Nazi party or the British uh, fascist party. Unlike Ezra Pound, who was uh, 
lived in, in fascist Italy and served the Italian government, uh, broadcast uh, radio propaganda from Italy. And as you say, uh, Lewis turned quite critical of Nazism. So he wrote a book called um, The Hitler Cult. He subsequently wrote a book attacking anti-Semitism in 1939. Unlike Pound, who maintained those views all through the war, um, Lewis recanted them. Um, but it's, you know, it's, Im- it's important for us to understand that people like Lewis and Pound were not anomalous. Mm-hmm. You know, the, a, a large majority of Italians and Germans were taken up by these movements and Given the economic realities in post-war Germany, it's not surprising that Hitler was able to exploit those resentments in the ways that he did. Mm-hmm. I think it's important for us to to not make the mistake of treating early century uh, writers and intellectuals and artists who be- got swept up in right-wing political movements as monstrous and utterly unlike anything that we could ever see, because I think that is a mistake it tempts us to believe that we could never uh, make uh, similar errors, and I think that's a critical mistake. Mm-hmm. And at the same time that Lewis was was going through these political positions and change in positions, he was also writing novels. Were the novels do they reflect his his politics at the time? Are they were they designed to advance certain political ideas or? Did he keep them separate, or was he pursuing a different artistic agenda at the same time that he was staking out political territory? I think it's important to understand that Lewis's aesthetic is very um, critical. Mm-hmm. Rather, it, it, he's not a he's more of a terror down than a yeah. razor up. Bombardier. That was yes. one of his favorite <laughs> favorite verbs, right? Or so, bombardiering. Um, a, a, a fascinating novel in this regard is Revenge for Love, mm-hmm. which is published in 1937, uh, along with Tar, his first published novel in 1918. These are the two greatest novels, I'd say, that Hitler, uh, that Hitler, <laughs> that Lewis wrote. Um, and the Revenge for Love is a, is a, written about the Spanish Civil War. It's, it takes place before the Spanish Civil War began, and it's really interested in uh, British armchair Marxists. And it's quite hostile and scornful, satirical about British armchair Marxists. So there's a anti-Marxist politics that's alive in that novel, but it's not a political track. It's a novel, and it's quite a powerful and, and um, fascinating novel. And it's also... Uh, it's a it's a moving novel in some ways. Mm-hmm. It's quite um, it's a, it's I, I I would recommend the novel. It's not easy to get that novel anymore, but eventually it will be reprinted. Um, but you know he his hostility to things powered much of his writing. So he has a book called Snooty Baronet, which is mm-hmm. a hilarious hilarious novel, and that's an attack on. Um, behaviorism, the, the psychological theory of behaviorism, which Lewis reviled, uh, which, you know, reduced human beings to a bunch of behaviors. And, uh, Snooty Baronet is a satirical uh, attack on behaviorism. So his novels were often satirical, and there's a kind of critical politics alive in all of them. But there's nothing 
doctrinaire about Raymond Lewis. He really is. Groucho Marx said, I never, I, I would never join a club that would have me as a member. That's the kind of person that Lewis was. He couldn't really do the group thing. And, uh, you know, his biggest effort it, it, during the Vortices period, um, was always strained. And he really was uh, a loner. Mm-hmm. And, um, he couldn't get with any political program for very long. Mm-hmm. Now you've, uh, as a as a scholar, you've spent a a lot of time with Lewis, and and probably more than just about anybody uh, <laughs> anybody alive today. I don't know how that how that strikes you, but um, I think it's it's probably true. And I'm wondering, did you ever find a a softness to him, or did you feel like there was an exterior, and that underneath? I mean, you say that some of his novels were very moving. Um, what were you able to penetrate that? Did you ever feel like, well, now I see that he's really just an insecure person or that he's got this very generous side, like, like Nietzsche throwing his arms around his horse or, or anything like that? Or, or was it, is it just, uh, hardness and, and edge all the way down? I don't think it's hardness and edge all the way down, though, uh, showing the soft side was not something that Lewis liked to do in his writing. Mm-hmm. Most of the, Writers who've done biography of Lewis uh, talk about the relationship he had with his wife, Roana, which uh, by all accounts was a, a close and intimate and loving uh, relationship, though she was 18 years younger than he was. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was fiercely opposed to sentimentality in literature. Mm-hmm. He thought that that was not what literature literature should be doing. And, um, when you get those moments in the novels, they're few and far between. They're particularly powerful because he's generally relentlessly anti-sentimental. In Revenge for Love, uh, at the end of the novel, uh, one of the characters weeps, uh, because of the death of two other characters. And Frederick Jameson, uh, a very uh, revered Marxist critic who wrote a very important book about Wyndham Lewis in the late 70s, calls that the realist tear in literature. Mm. And it is a very powerful and moving moment. Um, and part of the power of it is because there's so little of that kind of thing in the rest of the novel, right. which is more generally quite satirically comic um and i mean uh, you know the char the first novel is hilarious mm-hmm. and relentlessly comical in a in a cold way right and it's yeah these these books they're not devoid of uh humanity i mean they're full of of life and it's just a kind of of sneering uh embittered embattled life yeah some people you know Lewis is guilty of many crimes, uh, uh, misogyny, anti-Semitism, homophobia. And I always say, well, the truth is that he was a misanthropist. He hated right. everything. Right. He was an equal opportunity hater. Right. And, um, and it's just, you can't, I mean, he, I truly believe that he, he felt that human beings were grotesque creatures, that we had been gifted with intellect but that we were profoundly, um, profoundly limited, foolish, ignorant, stupid, self-destructive beings. 
uh, there's a great description in, in a scholarly work by Michael Levinson uh, called The Fate of Individuality in, in, modern, in modern Fiction, I think. And he talks about it as if uh, um, Lewis's characters are constantly watching themselves perform actions that they cannot control in, and they watch with horror. It's as if they are running after themselves, always trying to catch up with these beings that are compelled by various uh, obsessions, physical, psychological obsessions, and they don't choose to do anything. They constantly watch themselves do things that they cannot account for, and they're always trying to catch up with the crazy stuff that they do. Right. It, it that might get at why I find uh Lewis both his paintings and his novels so compelling is he held that view of humans so strongly and he was so able to get it onto both the the page and the canvas that it it really comes through and you know you have to be in the right mood for it. It 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 can't be um you have to be ready to get into that world, but once you are uh, it's it's thrilling. Uh, I, all the classes I've ever taught Tar to have said the same thing, and I actually think that we are in a moment where we are very ripe for Lewis's taste. Right. Uh, <laughs> I think you know we're we're we live in a very satirical age. We live in a very cynical age. We we live in a period where we have a lot of doubts about the goodness of humanity and the. Uh, and his kind of cold, rigorous critique of the human, I think, uh, would appeal to us now. Right. And where should we look to understand the legacy of, of Vorticism and Lewis? Are, can you see his influence on uh, things that lasted beyond the period? Or is it really something we should turn to if we're trying to understand that period in time? Well, I think we should turn to it to try to understand that period in time, that's for certain. The question of legacy is an interesting one around Vorticism, because uh, Vorticism had basically disappeared from art history and from literary history uh, f from the 30s until the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, there are some literary critics, Hugh Kenner, most importantly, who recovered Lewis as a writer. Mm -hmm. uh, but it wasn't until the the late 70s when two scholars, a literary scholar, William Weiss, and the, an art historian, Richard Cork, really started to um, do hardcore archival research and recovery of vorticism that we began to uh, understand uh, what the legacy and the importance of vorticism was. And I would say that the legacy of vorticism is still developing in the last 20 years uh, vorticism stock has been on the rise. There's been a number of um, major museum shows, uh, and uh, Oxford Press is now going to republish all of Lewis's writing. Mm. And so um, I think in the next 20 years, the legacy of vorticism will be revealed to be much greater than it once was believed to be, that its impact on visual art and on literary art will come to be understood as greater than we thought it was. Uh, and it will come to be seen as a major, one of the more important uh, modernist movements of the 20th century. Well, I think I agree, and I think that's a good place to end. Professor Pepys, thank you very much for joining us today on the History of Literature. 
was a true pleasure. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Man, I enjoyed that one. My thanks to Professor Paul Pepys for giving us his thoughts and helping us put Mr. Lewis and the Vorticists in context. We think of modernisms in the plural. Wow, we are not going to run out of topics for shows, people. Speaking of running out of shows, I've heard from some of you that you can't get enough of the History of Literature podcast. Well, that's wonderful to hear. Feel free to stock up and download all you want. They're available at iTunes and Stitcher and plenty of other podcast apps. They're all there, all for free. Quick tip, subscribing to the show is just a single click, and then the future world of episodes shall be yours as well. Where else can you control time like that? Past, present, and future. Click, click, and click. I've turned you all into gods. Well, I can't take all the credit. It was me and my partner, the Internet. While you're there, submit a review. Let us know how we're doing. We'd love to hear from you. We love those five-star ratings and those reviews full of praise. Very appreciative. You can also email me at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. Tell me your ideas. Tell me what episodes you'd like me to do next. I get to as many of those as I can. Sometimes it takes me a while, but they stay on the list. You can also find us at historyofliterature.com and facebook.com slash historyofliterature. Or at jackwilson.com, J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com. Or just relax. Find yourself a good book to read. And wait until next week when I'll join you all again for another stop on our journey. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.